I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Aaron Hatton, professor and author of the book Coerced, Work Under the Threat of Punishment. Dr. Hatton and I discuss the ways in which coerced labor exists in various aspects of American culture, from prison labor to graduate student labor and college athlete programs, to name a few. We also explore how these labor arrangements, which seem quite different on the surface, are all connected to one another. Many have either very low compensation or, in some cases, there's no compensation. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with professor and author Dr. Erin Hatton. Erin Hatton, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So in your book, you talk about certain groups of people that are classified as non-workers, but they actually do work. They actually work quite a bit. And some of the examples you talk about are incarcerated people, graduate students and college athletes. How are you defining in this sense what a non-worker is? Sure. Well, you can use all sorts of definitions, um, but an easy go to is the law. Um, And so there are all sorts of groups of workers, people who perform labor for the economic benefit of someone that are not protected by labor and employment laws. They are not officially considered to be employees under the law. And um, there are all sorts of workers who fall, who don't fall into the legal definition of employee. Um, In my book, I examine four of them. As you noted, incarcerated workers, people who work behind bars but are not at all protected by labor and employment protections, welfare recipients who have to work in order to receive public assistance, student athletes, specifically I look at football and basketball players at Division I schools, and graduate students in the sciences who work um, in their advisors' labs. They perform labor, but they don't get paid for it. Right. So the coercive part, I think, that, that connects these, these you know, three different roles is that for this transaction of labor, they're not paid. You know, there's no cost or no, no value being gained beyond what's deemed valuable in the system. But there's no there's no salary. There's no money. And if they choose not to work within that system, there is, you know, some kind of punitive cost to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be clear, A number of the workers that I studied did get some form of economic remuneration, if not exactly wages. So, well, prisoners in New York State, they get paid wages. They just happen to be like 10 cents an hour. Um, Although in other states, prisoners don't get any money at all for their work. So it kind of varies. Um, Welfare recipients, you could argue, well, okay, they're not getting wages, but they are getting their their public assistance, which um, sometimes includes cash benefits. And student athletes and graduate students, they both get tend to get some form of stipend and often they get their scholarships. And so people will say, look, yeah, sure. OK, they're not getting wages, but they're getting this other stuff. And it's true for um, all of these positions that I'm studying. They are getting stuff, right? The, the stuff that comes with being a graduate student or a student athlete. Um, but part of the power dynamics in that relation is that um, all of that stuff can be taken away, taken away at the drop of a hat. And therefore, they can be punished quite severely if they don't do what their boss says. But it's more than just the wages. It's more than just the stipend and the scholarship. Though Those are also very important. But all of the, the privileges and benefits and opportunities, as well as maybe the little bit of money they get, all of that can be taken away. Right. And the the example you used with incarcerated people getting 10 cents or 15 cents per hour, you know, in some cases, like you said, they do get stuff. (laughs) You know, you can you can qualify that as stuff, but it's not 
really that valuable in the scope of things. The question that came to mind is like, why pay them at all in certain states? Is it to get around the law of how they're classified? Oh, no, they don't need to be paid by the law. Not at all. In fact, according to our constitution, as it's written, prison labor, prisoners are the only exception to slavery. So when with the 13th Amendment, when it abolished slavery, they said, okay, no one can be enslaved except as punishment for a crime. So it's written in that prisoners can actually be forced to labor, and they often are. So they don't have to be paid, not at all. Um, But various states, you know, in part to um, perhaps quell prisoner unrest, do offer them some money. There's a can be quite an economy behind bars. They also sell them goods. So they use that money in order to buy um, basic toiletries, deodorant, toothpaste, uh, toilet paper, and so on. Because it takes a little bit of money to actually live behind bars nowadays. They are also expected to pay in some states for things like phone calls. So even, you know, basic communication with their family can cost money. And so they do use the money that they get from their work to to survive, to have, to sustain relationships with their children and their spouses. You know, this is more of a comment than a question, but I was just thinking about the fact that in, in at least in our culture, incarceration isn't, isn't punitive enough. <laughs> they have to be incarcerated and then work for next to nothing, right? That's a part of the punishment, which is really interesting. That's right. I mean, you know, I just actually had an interview recently where the interviewer was kind of like, well, what do they expect? They're incarcerated. And my response is, hang on, (laughs) they're incarcerated. Like that is the punishment. But then once they're incarcerated, we load in all of these other punishments on them. And it's still kind of as a culture, just as you say, we we have come to accept that as just a part and parcel of their incarceration. But it doesn't have to be that way. So taking away their freedom is the punishment in theory. Um, But now they can be compelled to work. They can be thrown in solitary confinement for an indefinite amount of time. They can be cut off from their family. You know, it's not just incarceration. It's piling on punishment after punishment for these people. Yeah. And, you know, you actually opened the book with a conversation with a person who's formerly incarcerated. And I think it's really interesting that it's so deeply within our culture that he doesn't even really know what to think of his own labor when he was actually incarcerated, which I found really interesting. That's right. I mean, you know, the thing, of course, is that of all the workers that I interviewed, they are of American culture, just as we, the reader, are of American culture. And so they too kind of struggle with these ideas. He says, yes, prison labor is slave labor. It's slave labor at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day, it's slave labor. And then he goes on to say, but I wouldn't expect anything else because we're prisoners. You know, you're paying taxes out there and my wife and my mom's, they're paying taxes. And somewhere down the line, it came into the prison. You're supporting us and we're not doing anything. So he's, he, he, he embraces this rhetoric of prisoners being idle, not doing anything, not contributing to society, as many people believe. And yet, at the same time, he's also talking about how hard they work, how much they work, and how they should be required to work as a part of their incarceration. And so, you know, they, they too kind of wrestle with, sometimes embrace, sometimes resist or challenge um, sometimes both this these kind of American cultural conceptions of them as as needing punishment, as being slaves, as deserving citizenship rights or not. Wow, that's that's really incredible. I mean, just think about it like he's doing all of this labor. But if he were outside on the other side of the bars and was getting paid, you know, six figures to do the same labor, you know, he'd be lauded as someone who's, you know, who's doing great work and a great contribution to society. So that's right. <laughs> that's right. They're they're both compelled to work, but also cast as like 
as being lazy dependence. Well, I want to move on from the incarcerated population, but I do want to ask you one question because you you note in the book that there was kind of this transformation in the way that we view incarcerated people over time, right? Um, I guess it was earlier in the 20th century or, you know, maybe even earlier than that, where, you know, it was kind of romanticized, you know, they were seen as heroic outlaws, right? But then at some point, you know, probably following the race riots in the 60s, and then of course there was a war on drugs. And when the demographics of the population, the prison population began to shift, it became more black and brown, then the image of incarcerated people began to change. And I'm just curious, is that If there was also a transformation of the labor that was expected along with those changing demographics. Well, you know, there have been waves over time, so it's not just a linear story. So going back even further, after emancipation from slavery, the prisons, at least in the South, were used to re-enslave formerly enslaved people. It was mostly Black men, but also Black children and Black women as well. So they were compelled to work building roadways and railways and um, in the cotton fields after emancipation from slavery. So there is it's kind of a circular history. And then that practice subsided to a certain degree. Of course, people of color, specifically African-Americans, have long been disproportionately incarcerated. That's not entirely new. But then by mid-20th century, there was a sense that the prison system was a space of rehabilitation and reform. And this ideal was really at least culturally palatable because the vision of the prisoner was a white guy. Um, someone who was perhaps down on his luck, who could be made better through prison, through rehabilitation. But as you say, with the kind of turn to tough on crime policies and the drug war, also stemming from the, the uprisings of the 60s and 70s and the welfare rights movement among Black women in the 60s and 70s as well, there was this whole cultural shift, this very strong backlash against um, people of color and specifically, again, African-Americans. And we saw at the same time this massive wave of incarceration. And so once again, so which was disproportionately people of color, Black, young Black men. And so... Through that whole time, there was certainly some labor going on in American prisons, to be sure. But with the systematic incarceration of Black men, their compulsory labor certainly becomes a central issue, at least for me. Um, so many, many people talk about this crisis of incarceration, but they're, they tend to forget that these people behind bars are also being compelled to work. One of the comparisons that you make to prison work is these welfare programs. You also call them workfare programs. Um, anyway, you say that welfare is the feminized version of prison labor. Can you explain that? That's right. So uh, so with um, what's popularly known as welfare reform, which was a major change in welfare policy in 1996, um, this policy brought work to the, as a centerpiece of welfare receipts. And so it required more and more people than ever before, though there were were some policies in place already requiring people to work, but it made people work in order to get benefits, kind of under the assertion, largely false assertion that people weren't already working or trying to find work. And so they would be forced to apply for, you know, 60 jobs in 60 days. And if they, before even being able to apply get welfare at all, any form of public assistance. And then once they would qualify, then they would be assigned to various things, including what are sometimes called work activities or work experience programs. They're kind of called anything except for actual work, but they they, they uh, tiptoe around it. And so they're assigned to do 
perform labor, unpaid labor, usually for 25 or 35 hours a week. For the most part, in order to get welfare assistance, people have to be quite, quite destitute and usually have children. Um, and so because women are tend to be the primary caretakers of children in this country, they tend to be the ones, Black women tend to be the ones who qualify for welfare. Though, of course, it should be noted that, you know, numerically speaking, white people outnumber Black people in the welfare system, as they do, I believe, in the prison system, right? But again, in the welfare system, Black women are um, disproportionately represented um, because they're disproportionately poor and impoverished. And so they are then, through this highly punitive welfare system, put to work cleaning up trash in the parks, cleaning subway cars in order to receive their public assistance. They don't have time to go out and get a quote real job, they're they're forced to do this often quite punitive labor um, in order to gain access to the social safety net. Yeah, you know, um, it speaks to how poverty is penalized and criminalized in our in our culture, and how dependency. If you have any dependency, that's kind of punished in our culture, and the fact that these people need help. Um, is punished, right, in these demeaning ways. And I was just wondering if you could, you know, explain or go into detail about just give a few examples of how it's so punishing in the welfare system, because I don't think people really know what that's like if you never had to go and, you know, apply for welfare and go through the system and try to keep it, actually. That's right. It's an extremely punitive and really degrading system. Um, Before I do that, I just wanted to say also, just to bolster your point, the fact that we only characterize some things as dependency, right? So being a prisoner, you're dependent on the system. Being uh, Getting any kind of welfare benefits, you're dependent on the system. But getting a student loan, you're not constructed as socially dependent. Getting a small business loan, you're not constructed as a dependent, even though they're all government support, right? So it is also, it kind of only furthers the point that only some groups are cast and castigated as social dependents, which is this very demeaning and stigmatized um, notion in our culture. And so, yeah, so in welfare, it really is quite punitive. People are outright told that they're lazy. There are many, many hoops to even qualify. Um, So there's a lot of push to keep people out of the system altogether. And then the common threat is that they'll be sanctioned. So if they do anything wrong or maybe just being accused of something wrong, if they um, didn't bring their paperwork, they can be sanctioned. If they miss a meeting with their caseworker because they have childcare issues, they can be sanctioned. And being sanctioned means that they're losing access to the social safety net. And so they're told uh, they are sent to um, resume classes, but they don't actually get to do anything in those resume classes. They get very little help. They don't actually get any linkages to real jobs or any real job training. It's this kind of this empty shell of a structure in which the the common goal is to um, punish them for being there rather than to help them get out of there. And that's, that's what they really felt like. The people that I interviewed are, again, of American culture. They believe profoundly in the importance of work. They want a job. They also want to feel respected, as all of us do. And they found none of those things while while in the welfare system. Yeah. And just imagine these kind of, I don't know what, how to classify them, these structures that don't, don't necessarily need to exist just for the fact that they want to punish people who are who are poor and who are dependent. Right. Imagine if you took those resources and, you know, redirected them to somewhere else that was actually useful instead of having them go through these kind of useless hoops. You know what we could do to transform a lot of communities and groups in our in our culture. Absolutely. I mean, it would it would take a radical transformation because really now it does seem like the welfare system 
system is about cutting down and pushing out rather than building up. And so it would it would require a whole new system, but one that desperately needs reforming. Yeah. One group that I don't think you mentioned in your book is unemployment, which I think is very similar to welfare. It's very similar in the way that if you're unemployed, you are then dependent and you have to go through some similar hoops like, you know, proving that you've applied for a certain number of jobs and attending these classes. And it's also very kind of punishing. That's right. Any of those kind of basic social safety net programs are so stigmatized in our culture. Um, So we try to keep people out. We have this kind of overwhelming fear of people taking advantage of. There's been so much rhetoric about um, people's fraudulence and taking advantage of the system when really that's just largely not the case. It's, it's, data just don't bear out that assertion. Um, and yes, people without quote unquote real jobs, people who are down on their luck, in between jobs, laid off, they're highly stigmatized. And, and they do kind of face this loss of status that I talk about as well in the book, although I don't talk about them specifically. Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, somewhat related, not mentioned in your book, obviously, because this happened after your book was published. But, you know, I think that, you know, George Floyd is a good example and his murder. You know, I think that the reports are that he was passing off a, a bad $20 bill or something like that, which if we had safety nets in, in place, social safety nets, you know, the wealthy people don't need to do that. Right. They don't they don't go into the store and risk, you know, um, know, being being fined or being jailed or even being killed in this case, you know, for a twenty dollar bill. So, you know, that's that's one aside. Uh, The second thing is that I don't know if you remember this other story. I think it was sometime last year where this woman was, you know, waiting in a welfare office with her child and, you know, sat on the floor. And because, you know, there was a sign that says, you know, no sitting allowed. uh, She was arrested. Yeah, I mean, the criminalization of poverty as it intersects with the criminalization of black men and women is so profound, so pervasive and such a source of problem in American culture. So we see the criminalization of people, um, just a black man walking down the street leads police to murder an innocent person. And the criminalization of poverty pushes someone to commit what are essentially often pretty petty crimes in order to just get by because our social safety net is so weak that there are no other options. Yeah. So I want to go to the other spectrum, which we wouldn't like logically think that these were connected, but let's go to, you know, the collegiate and academic atmosphere. So graduate students and college athletes are also classified as these non-workers. So can you talk a bit about those two groups and how they're related to incarcerated people and people who use welfare? Sure. So let me just say at the outset that in no way am I suggesting that these groups are the same, right? In no universe are graduate students really like prisoners. They're not in prisons. Um, they're not, they do not suffer the same marginalization or the same vulnerability. Um, and same with student athletes, right? These are very, very different groups. Um, but what I do argue in the book is that all of these groups of workers, as different from each other as they are, they do face a similar type of labor coercion, just as, you know, like regular people um, in all sorts of jobs, day laborers and middle managers and upper level management, they all face some degree of economic coercion, right? No one wants to lose their wages. And this puts a lot of pressure on them to do what they do, need to do to keep their jobs. So they all face economic coercion, but to different degrees. Um, And so that's what I argue in the book, that these very different groups of workers, they're very differently marginalized and vulnerable and exploited, um, but they do face the same type of coercion. So for the athletes and the graduate students, 
I argue that first of all, they are workers. They both both of these groups perform labor for the economic benefit of really other people, uh, not themselves. They're not allowed to um, benefit economically from their labor. And in both of these cases, their bosses, their coaches, or, and their faculty advisors wield a lot of power over them. Um, so they can revoke their funding, i.e. their education. So for athletes, they can lose their scholarships for school and the accreditation that comes with that and the potential job opportunities that comes with having a bachelor's degree. Same with graduate students. Um, they can also influence their future job opportunities. So in both of these cases, their bosses wield a great deal of power over their their future work. Um, so athletes, in fact, I hadn't known this going in, rely a lot on their coaches after school, much like we do in academia with our faculty advisors who write letters of recommendation who can make or break your job application, right? Faculty advisors are the gatekeepers for PhDs to get a job after school. But the same with coaches for student athletes. So many of them go into the sports world or into the personal training world and so on. And certainly if you're even hoping to go into the um, NFL or the NBA, they also give recommendations. And if your coach says that you're a bad apple, that you're not coachable, that you don't fall in line, that you don't do what he says, you're not going to get recruited to play professionally. Right. And the, the thing that these two groups have in common, again, is that, you know, they, they are given some kind of compensation for the work that they do, but it's nowhere near the compensation that they would get if they were classified differently. Right. Like if the graduate student was actually a tenured professor. Right. <laughs> or, That's you know, right. I, yeah, I mean, so it's it's it, so part of the value that they say that they're giving them is the experience, which I mean, I guess it has some value. I mean, I don't know. I'm playing devil's advocate. Is there value in gaining experience as a graduate student? Yes, of course. I mean, it's absolutely the case that graduate students um, need to be trained in their field. And so, and, you know, the sciences is quite a different field from my own, which is sociology. We don't do that same type of lab training in sociology. But I oversee graduate students and I am in charge of helping them become sociologists. And so that means overseeing their work, um, pushing them to do more, to expand their, I don't know, master's thesis or dissertation. Um, but what they're not doing for me, and at least in my field, is that they're not working under me. They're not doing my research for me, which is what they are doing in the sciences. So in, in biology and in chemistry, faculty run a lab, and their whole career is based on the research that comes out of their lab. That's where they get their publications and any patents. And that's, they get grants to fund the research. And so then they bring in graduate students and postdocs. And those are the ones who are actually kind of doing the lab work. They're running the experiments and the, the advisors telling them what to do, perhaps guiding their research. And the students are definitely learning from that experience. But the problem is, it is equally a labor relationship as it is a learning relationship. And they're completely intermixed. Um, so th they even call their faculty advisors their bosses. I mean, it is a work relationship. You need to be in the lab to do the work for your boss, um, even as you're also gaining an education from it. But this dynamic is really complicating. Uh, it means that especially, say, untenured professors are under a heck of a lot of pressure to get their students to do stuff, to work all the time, to produce results, to produce publications. Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on students. It is very much a labor relation. 
You know, one of the things that I think the college athletes have in common with people who receive welfare is the fact that their labor is surveilled quite heavily. Is that true? That's absolutely right. For prisoners, for welfare recipients, and for athletes, especially, those three groups are heavily surveilled. I mean, athletes, I've talked to student athletes who have to wear heart monitors, you know, not sometimes all the time, certainly during practice. I mean, they're monitoring their every move. They're monitoring how much they sleep at night, um, whether they go out and have a beer in the evening. Um, Certainly, you know, whether they show up for practice, they're are heavily surveilled. They're monitoring their Twitter accounts and their Instagram accounts um, and telling them to take things down. So yes, these groups are heavily surveilled. Now, graduate students are less overtly surveilled, but it's because they would tell me that they're expected to be in the lab 60 plus hours a week. It's effectively the same thing. Wow. So is this unique to, especially the the collegiate environment, is this unique to American culture? I mean, you know, if I were to go to to Oxford or some other, you know, university outside of American culture, would I experience the same thing? Um, Well, college sports, as I understand it, are not the same elsewhere. Um, So we do have this kind of unique system. And someone could correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think we have a pretty unique system in which athletes are very limited. They are explicitly limited and that they can't earn any money from their athleticism. They can't run a camp in their own name in the summertime because their name is their brand name and effectively belongs to the NC2A and the university. Um, So they are really heavily restricted, surveilled and monitored um, in a way that I think other college athletes just aren't and and college sports just aren't as big um, as they are with NC2A in the U.S., Prison labor is also not as intense in most other developed nations as it is in the U.S., um, although workfare does exist in some other countries. Not a ton, but certainly it has been in the U.K. So there is some variation, but we see this, you know, the U.S. has quite um, intense versions of these. And, and these aren't the only forms of this type of coercion in the U.S., but they are certainly some extreme ones. So what else is at stake for people in these coercive work relationships? You know, because it isn't just the threat of a loss of income. It's often larger than that, right? So before you mentioned, for example, just unemployed people. And I think people who experience unemployment also experience this form of coercion or potentially experience it that I'm talking about because work is so central to American culture. The fear of losing one's job, let's say you're a lawyer, let's say you're a teacher. And this identity, let's say you're a priest, let's say you're an army general. These occupations are not just ways of earning money, but they're also integral to people's identities. They're really important sources of pride and dignity and meaning in people's lives. And so the possibility of losing one's job is doesn't just incite a fear of losing money, although that's pretty important. Um, But it's also about losing one's status, losing one's identity, um, losing one's kind of role in American culture. And so I think this type of status coercion that I'm talking about can exist for all sorts of workers, not just these more random examples that I talk about in the book. You know, who is immune to this? Like what groups are immune to this? When do you cross over the threshold to being a non-worker, a coerced worker, to being someone who isn't, right? Like how do you cross that line? It's more a matter of degree than difference in kind. So like I said before, 
all workers in a capitalist society such as ours experience some degree of economic coercion, right? Like I just don't have enough money to quit my job tomorrow. And so, so I work, I do what I need to do to get money to support my family and survive. And we accept, accept that. And now we have put some protections in place to mitigate that, right? So if I really lost my job and I was really down on my luck, and even though it's highly stigmatized, I might be able to get unemployment insurance. Um, or if I were disabled, um, also a very stigmatized and difficult to access program, but I might also be able to get social security benefits. Um, so it's a, it's a difference in degree, right? So in status coercion, the different type of coercion I talk about, uh, one thing that I mentioned very briefly in the book is another example is Hollywood acting, right? This is very high status, high privilege occupation. But as I was working on the book, the Weinstein scandal broke loose. And, you know, he effectively acted as a gatekeeper, an abusive gatekeeper to this high status occupation. So whenever there are these kind of closed occupations that people have worked very hard and want very badly to get access to, there are gatekeepers that are, can keep people out of that status or let people into that status. That is also status coercion, right? So they wield a great deal of power. When you're in, you're in, right? You're in like Flynn. When you're um, uh, <laughs> don't <laughs> when um, when you're a high status college athlete, you can be treated like a king on campus. But at the same time, you know, I've read the um, the sports handbooks that they give the athletes, and they literally told them that people would crawl through glass to be where you are today. You're not that special. Buck up. Don't complain. Um, so, so it's whenever there is, even with there's both for low status occupations such as prison labor and high status occupations such as Hollywood acting and elite football player, elite basketball player on campus. Whenever there are perks that come with a particular status when you're performing labor, this type of coercion can exist. Is this primarily? A moral issue. Like I know in, in relation to incarcerated people, this is definitely a moral issue. But overall, what do we gain by fixing this system? And, you know, is this something that we is it a cultural change or is there something can we do like policy our way out of this? Um, I think to a certain degree, we could policy our way out of this. I mean, you know, a, a basic switch could be turned if we started recognizing people who produce economic value through their labor as workers and therefore as workers with kind of a basic set of rights and protections that we as a culture come to expect to be associated with work. So, but the problem is, is that when they're, because they're not considered workers, right? So whenever graduate students or student athletes, um, quote unquote, complain about their working conditions, complain about being pushed to play through injuries, complain about being expected to go out on the field in the middle of a pandemic, they are told to shut up, quit whining, you're so privileged, go out and play. If you don't want to do it, leave, right? And so so they, because of the labor that they perform, they should also, I argue, be able to make claims as workers, um, and so, and they should be protected as workers. They not, should not be put at undue risk in their job, just as we try for all sorts of jobs to protect workers to not be put at undue risk. Um, and so recognizing them as workers would give them those types of protections. And it would also encourage us to put systems in place to kind of check the potential abuses of power that their bosses can wield. 
Because right now, for all of these groups, there's no like HR department looking over their boss's shoulders to see how they're treating their workers. There's not because they're not deemed to be workers. It's not deemed to be a labor relation. They can pretty much do whatever they want. But if there were an HR department where workers could file an anonymous grievance, where they could go complain, where they could lodge a complaint, where they could get protections, um, as well as someone who's monitoring their boss's actions as a labor supervisor, that would be incredibly important and powerful. Aaron Hatton, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for writing this book. It's a really important read course. Everyone should read it to kind of understand this. This is, you know, very good. Thank you. Thank you. 